0: what is going on ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another edition of the jays for days podcast i'm josh he's josh we got jays jumpers jaron jackson Jr., john Marantz, joe johnson's jaw john rafts of course we've got jays we've gotten for days josh how you doing
1: you know just out here feast week in and of itself is always a interesting scheduling proposition with so many games and so much going on. And then you just throw a world cup in there group stage, nonetheless. So you've got four games a day in four different time slots. It is, it is quite a time to be a soccer and college basketball fan this week.
0: Yeah. I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're pretty busy. I'm, I'm basking in the fact that I'm going to spend exactly 90 minutes watching the U S play Wales this afternoon. And then I'm going to forget about it regardless of who (laughs) wins or loses. It's going to be fantastic. And I'm going to do that with the, with the you know, what fifty total games across? I mean, no, it's I guess it's more than that. Um, the one hundred total games following that, up until we have a a winner of the World Cup, it's fantastic. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> it's not all that. It's not all that often I get to do that. So I am. Um, I, I I wish you the best of luck in the next <laughs> spe- specifically specifically the next week, but. Um by extension the next when is the gold medal game? The gold medal match. The
1: eighteenth, I believe.
0: Gotcha. Is that the correct eighteenth, I believe? Gold medal match. Is that correct? Is that the correct terminology? The world the world title, I, like
1: World Cup final. I call world it the World Cup. Cup final.
0: Okay. All right. If there Whatever. are gold
1: medals that get handed out. I just saved that for the Olympics and just the call Olympics. it World Cup
0: final. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Um, as much as I am sure you are chomping at the bit here, we're going to talk college basketball first, okay? Um, and and then we're going to stop recording before we talk about the World Cup. <laughs> so I am very, very sorry. Um, but um, you know, just a, a normal run through stuff pod today. Uh, we'll start with winners and losers, and then kind of bounce around to some of the um the bigger games of the week. A a, a, a multi team event an MTE in Las Vegas that uh, had. Plenty of interesting things to talk about as a result of the final scores there. And, uh, and then we'll get out of here and we'll get out of here. We'll get uh, get well on our way to to feast week. Um, that's really already underway, but kind of as we um, that it, that is already on its way. But um, we'll get we'll get good and ready for it. But it's Monday winners and losers every Monday uh, teams that put themselves in good positions, teams that maybe did not do that so much. Um, sometimes it's a player, sometimes it's a conference. Most of the time it's just a single team, but we take some liberty when it comes to that. But we will start where we always do on a Monday with winners and losers. Josh, who is your winner?
1: I'm going to give you the distinction of going first this week.
0: You're going to give me the distinction of going first yeah. this week? Okay. Um, My winner is Virginia because I'm not sure that there is a, a I, in the spirit of the description of winners and losers, it's hard to find a team who did what Virginia did this week um, out at the main event in Las Vegas. First of all, the, the big huge Vegas chips on the sideline uh, on the, on the baselines, I could probably do without those. They're they're super loud other than that, whatever, it's fine. Um, but uh, Virginia, they get two wins to win that event. They beat Baylor. And then they go on to beat Illinois and right in and of itself. That's a really impressive week. Um, The thing that impresses me the most is they won one of these games scoring 86 points and they won one of these games holding the other team to 61 and You know, we we have this conversation every single year when it comes to Virginia because that's just what we kind of do. And for you know, the first thing they did is against Illinois, they reminded us that it is an elite defensive program at its core. Um, Terrence Shannon Jr. has quietly been like one of the three or four best players in college basketball so far this season. He had in his first four games had three games of twenty-four points or more, and against UCLA had twenty-nine. Got to the free throw line a bunch of times. And against and against Virginia, he had nine points. Was four of ten from the floor and was o two of two from the free throw line. And that a lot of that credit goes to right Reese Beekman, goes to just that Virginia defensive ability in general. Um and then the night before, they I mean Baylor's guards were were really good. Um they were um 54 points combined and apart from a from a brief run like kind of in the middle like it it, they never really got within arm's reach of virginia the entire second half even when it felt like baylor started to pick it up offensively virginia just kept making shots armand franklin was spectacular what in the world where did that come like 26 points um They were 25 of 45 from the field as a team against Baylor. They were nine of 14 from deep, went to the free throw line 35 times. Um, I'll save a couple things I have about Baylor um, for a little bit later in the podcast when we're not in the winners and losers portion of, of the pod today. But, Virginia got two spectacular wins. They're up to, you know, top seven at Kim Palm one Carolina's seventh or fourth and Virginia's seventh or fourth. I don't remember off the top of my head. One moment um, it is Virginia who is, who is fifth. Sorry. It's Virginia who is fifth. Um, so I was just wrong in a gajillion different ways, but they are fifth <laughs> and up to fourth in offensive efficiency at the moment. Um, so really impressed by them. Tony Bennett is back in a big way, and we haven't gotten any conference play yet, and he's made sure to remind people of that. So Virginia, my winner for the the results purely. And then when you dive deeper, a little bit deeper into how they won those games, um, you know, it's early, of course, but that's a pretty good pretty good spot to to prove that you can win games in, in, in multiple different ways against teams with uh, elite talent.
1: And not only did Virginia do all of the things you just laid out? And I want to reinforce some of those, because that was my takeaway from a Virginia perspective too. They did this after what that university has just been through. Right. Which is yet another testament to what I will continue to harp on about Tony Bennett, which is you can feel however you want about the way he builds his program, the fact he hasn't really embraced the transfer portal, the fact that you know he's not getting one and dones, the fact that their offense isn't always pretty. But from a, a culture standpoint, from a mental toughness, resiliency standpoint, from a identity standpoint, what he has built is remarkable. And it's a testament that right this is the program that could come back from losing as a number one seed to win a national championship. This is a program that just won a MTE with three really, really good teams. And then the fourth being them, another really, really good team after an incredibly difficult week or so for everybody associated with that university. That's the other part of this I wanted to mention too, is not only on the floor, but the fact that they were able to do what they did on the floor with everything else that mentally they're still trying to process and and grieve. Mm -hmm. And then you hit the point I wanted to make, which was just the versatility of these wins, right? They shot the lights out against Baylor. Baylor had sort of the run that set the, possibility for a run that would have gotten them back in the game but that second run never came Mm -hmm. so they just sort of stayed within striking distance for a while but it was it was the three-point line and then you go to the illinois game where you still score 70 points even though you're five of 17 from three because you get to the free throw line 32 times you hit 25 of them you only allow illinois to get to the free throw line nine times Mm mm-hmm And so all of a sudden you're in this situation where Virginia looks everybody's good as we both thought they were going to be. And already going to that NCAA tournament conversation, they're scoring 70 plus points against really good teams already. And maybe the defense isn't exactly where you want it yet, but they still did some really good good things defensively. And if they're scoring 75 points instead of 64, they are all of a sudden you know, at least a top 10 team in the country, if not top five.
0: As of right now, they're projected to win more games than anybody else in the ACC this year. And that includes Duke and North nah, Carolina. That doesn't stun me. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, we talked to that, about that at the beginning of the season. The question is never with Virginia, can they put enough games together in ACC play? The past couple of years, it's just been a clear and striking talent difference between that program and some of the other programs in the conference and they still find ways to win a ton of conference games most years. Right. Um, I mean, they went 13 and four, two years ago in conference. Um, They won 12 last year in conference, despite being 72nd in adjusted adjusted offensive efficiency. I mean, sorry, in, in just efficiency as a team last year. Um, So when they have a team that is talented and performs at a high level relative to the rest of the country, Um, they're, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident in their abilities to win multiple, uh, to win high level, uh, ACC games and force North Carolina or Duke to win a ton of conference games to, to actually take that, that regular season title, which is exactly what we talked about. The
1: conversation. Yes. The conversation is, can they have enough offensively and be elite defensively put those two together to be a national title contender? That's where I'm at. Mm Mm-hmm. The rest of the questions have already been answered. It's how high is their ceiling? They're already ACC title contenders. Mm. Maybe they don't win the conference, but exactly like you just said, they're going to make somebody beat them. Who's your winner? My winner? I went a little bit sort of out of left field, but I went with Arizona State. Okay. <laughs> Arizona State got a four-point win over VCU and then a 25-point win over Michigan to win the Legends Classic following the loss of, to Texas Southern. Now, (laughs) they just couldn't miss against Michigan and held Michigan to 33% shooting from the field. I was even texting you as I was watching this game that nothing about that looks sustainable to me. (laughs) It was what happens when Bobby Hurley's guards all of a sudden have a really good day and you just can't guard them because they all turn into elite shot makers for 40 minutes. But still, to just blow Michigan out of the gym like that, it gets you back into a position where you're, I would argue, almost coming out ahead of where you should be at this point in the season if you you get a win over VCU, but you lose this game to Michigan and you beat Texas Southern like you should. To me, and especially the way the committee works, I philosophically disagree with this, but those key wins, those – marquee wins almost hold more sway than bad losses and the other part of this for me from an ncaa tournament perspective is just not letting this thing spiral and actually stopping the bleeding and then getting back into a spot where you've got a lot of confidence and you feel much better because of look what you just did to a good michigan team and so I don't know. I'm not convinced this is going to be the turnaround for Arizona State. And Arizona State, all of a sudden, is going to surprise people and you know finish fourth in the Pac-12 and easily make the NCAA tournament. But had this Legends Classic gone poorly, that could have been the end right then and there. And instead, they got they came away with a couple of good wins. They looked really good doing it for the most part, especially against Michigan. So, if they're able to turn this into something. This is going to be one of the things you look back on as kind of a turning point in their season, so it's one of those kind of it's getting late early situations, and they they kept the sun up a little bit while longer if you will
0: <laughs> i I think I'm more interested in the next two weeks than I am in the fact that they beat michigan right i'm I'm like because you you've laid the foundation like at least assuming Michigan stays in the top 25 for the remainder of the season, or at least is bouncing in and out. And hopefully you get to a point where they're like firmly in by the time you get to the end of the season. Then at the very least, you can start your non-conference conversation with, well, we beat Hunter Dickinson in Michigan. Um, (laughs) But right. They've already, already lost to Texas Southern. They probably should have lost to Tarleton state. Um, they play Grambling and Alcorn State coming up next. Grambling is already a team that's beaten another team in the Pac-12 already, right? Um, they are going to play a bad SMU team. They're going to play San Diego. They're going to play San Francisco. They do have an opportunity to get another good win against Creighton, but um, which right, like you said, I'm not exactly betting on them to ever replicate what they did against Michigan a single time this season. But for me, right. Y- y- to your point they kept the sun up by getting a win that nobody expected them to get and a win that will as long as things go the way that we're expecting them to go in an arbor will be a good win by the time we get to the end of the regular season i'm i'm interested in bobby hurley coaching this team to no more massive mistakes in non conference right that's the next step here mm-hmm. is to take is to take that win that nobody was expecting you to get and a 15 point win, like, like those, like that's an important fact, like the fact that they just, regardless of how they did it, the fact that they jumped on him early and controlled it throughout and won by 15, like that is not, that is not an unimportant part of the victory. Um, but if you can get through non-conference without another loss to the effect of Texas Southern, then this... Then this win against Michigan starts to get, get even more important because you you aren't just trying to cancel out bad non-conference losses with the one good non-conference win that you got. I mean, Texas Southern has already gotten smoked by and it Texas was a, Tech and it San was Francisco. a twenty-five
1: point victory, 87-62. Oh, my bad. Just wanted to so even even that. even more. My apologies. No, I mean um, math is. I've, Right, uh, just just to back your point up, yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, eighty six. Right. It's gonna lo- it's gonna look
1: very good on the metrics from every. Yeah, it's gonna look good on the metrics from every kind of measurable angle. But you got yeah. it right. You got to keep it going. This is sort of stopping the bleeding, but you got to actually address the the larger issue.
0: Um. Real quick, my my honorable mention winner is Charleston for finally winning the Charleston Classic this weekend, um, beating Virginia Tech in the process, um, getting a couple other respectable wins while doing so. Um, They won kind of in the final seconds. um, And I would also just run through a brick wall for Pat Kelsey, and I wanted to say that. So Charleston's my honorable mention. There you go. There you have it. (laughs) I like it. That thought did I,
1: cross my mind of making them my winner, so I'm glad you got it in there.
0: And and they didn't they didn't I mean they beat Davidson in Colorado State. And I'm not even sure. Was Davidson was the Davidson win a part of that event? I'm not even I don't even know for sure. But it's not like they beat another big team to get there. Um it was a part of it. It was a part of it. So good for you. Good for you, Charleston. Um but it it, it didn't quite get the the marquee win that would have pushed it over into the winner's circle, especially with what Virginia did this week. But um, but I wanted to mention them just uh, five and one. They finally won that event. First time in program history. They've actually won it. And uh, and that's good for pa- Pat Kelsey's team. It was fun to see them do it in front of in front of a home crowd. Uh, who is your loser?
1: Yeah. My loser is. Kentucky mm so we can we can save some actually you should do you you should do your loser first because
0: uh right that way
1: I'm not going back to back
0: right yes 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 um my apologies my loser um my loser is the teams in the ACC not named North Carolina and Virginia it was an absolutely huh. atrocious week for teams not named. North Carolina and Virginia. And it's not like North Carolina did something all that spectacular. They just beat the teams they were supposed to do, to beat. Um, here's who the ACC lost to this week. Are you ready? Let's go on and buckle up because it's quite the ride. Um, just on Sunday, Miami lost to Maryland by 18. Wake Forest lost to Loyola Marymount. Virginia Tech lost to Charleston. And Tarleton beat Boston College by 16. Those all happened on Sunday. That was only Sunday. And it wasn't that much better earlier in the week. Um, Florida State lost to Florida and is 0-4 now. We'll get to the, what they did earlier in the week one moment. Um, Pittsburgh lost to VCU. Duke lost to Kansas, which is fine, it just, it, it, but it happened. Um, Louisville lost to App State. Syracuse lost to Colgate to the Toothpaste by 12. Um, Boston College lost to Maine by 5. Florida State lost to Troy. And they are fifth in Ken Palm ratings. They're fifth. Um, and much closer to the Pac-12 at six than they are to the Big East at four. And Josh, they have three teams in the top sixteen: Virginia, Duke, and North. And they got two teams in the top nine, and they're still that bad at Kim right? They had the, they have the preseason number one team. They have perhaps the most impressive team such the thus far at least the past week, and. Like it is, they they had multiple atrocious nights when it came to um, the rest of the ACC. So they're my loser. The rest of the ACC, pick it up, please.
1: Yeah, and for a conference that was trying to repair its image this season, right, and try and show that it's not just the top, even if the top is three teams this season instead of one or two, depending on how you felt about last season the whole point was the depth behind <laughs> those three teams. And so far that depth has really not been there. And, you know, you can look at some of the PAC 12 struggles, the SEC hasn't been all that impressive. And you've got the ACC too. in there, That there's just seems to be this very clear sort of, and I mean, the big East has been, has been pretty good. So the ACC has got work to do to, get back into that upper tier of conferences, even if you're not talking about the ACC being the best conference in the country, just getting back somewhere into that conversation and turning the page from last season. That has not happened so far. Not at all. Who's your loser? My loser is Kentucky. Not just because of the Gonzaga loss and how it looked, but also just sort of what it means moving forward. We don't have to get into a whole conversation about all of the stuff we dove into with the Michigan State loss, but it was a lot of the same themes. CJ Frederick had three points in 36 minutes. Key players were in foul trouble. That became an issue because you don't have the ability to replace them when Savory Wheeler is not playing particularly well. Antonio Reeves is, again, inefficient. You need Sheebley and you need Case and Wallace to stay on the floor. And so now you've lost. And again, not that Kentucky was necessarily supposed to win this game. I'm going to take Gonzaga at home against probably every team in the country. And home being, you know, the general vicinity of where Gonzaga's campus is. But now all of a sudden, you know, I was looking forward at Kentucky's schedule. And to sort of rewrite this narrative before conference play, you've got a Michigan game and you've got a UCLA game. And if you don't look good in those, you you're really banking on the rest of the SEC stepping up. You know, Tennessee already has stumbled. Arkansas hasn't hasn't had a real test yet, but isn't necessarily blowing people out of the water. You're relying on the rest of your conference to kind of lift you up. If you're Kentucky trying to get back into this one and two seed conversation, you got to win an awful lot of SEC games. If this takes a while to get to get figured out because it's a lot of the themes you identified the role players aren't giving you enough sheboy is perhaps the most important player in the country even though you and I both don't think it needs to be that way and so now you're you had two marquee matchups you lost both of them it's not a sheboy working himself back into you know game shape situation that's not the issue he's been really good it's everything else around him. That was the big question mark coming into the season.
0: I I, like, I want to see them play. Like I would love to see them play a high major team without Oscar Sheway. Cause I'm just curious Mm -hmm. because I mean, there's part of me that's like, okay, yeah, sure. They, their guys shot well against bad basketball teams. And there's the other part of me and the part that I can't shake that like there's there's another consistency between them shooting well and that, them not shooting well, and that's Oscar Shibuya. Now, we don't know if just the the differences in that team when he's on the floor are the reasons they're shooting poorly or if it's the fact that they're playing teams that actually have the personnel to play high-level defense. We don't know that, and we'll probably never know that. But all I know is that Frederick and Reeves were horrible again in this game. I mean, the, the, those two guys, along with Severe Wheeler, were nine of twenty-eight from the field. Um, I and, and the the other part of this is that, like, it seems like Calipari has no interest in making this team anything other than an Oscar Sheba dominated <laughs> team. He just yep. looks like he's gotten outclassed on the sideline two games in a row. And I've and, I, and I've proudly been on the. I'm not sure John Calipari is that good of a x's and o's college basketball coach anymore because he makes it clear that that's not really what he's all that interested in at Kentucky um but and and I and if you asked me to rank my who I think are the best coaches in college basketball I would have gotten to Tom Izzo and Mark Few far before I got to John Calipari so that doesn't necessarily surprise me but it doesn't seem like they're doing all that much to try and get these guys out of the slump it's just kind of well, Casey Wallace is good. Well, Oscar Shibway is good. Let's 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 hope that Oscar Shibway can stand under the basket enough times in a game in a, you know, in a sport that it lives and dies on the three-pointer. Let's just hand it to the guy who shoots layups all day. Um I yeah, I don't I, I don't really know I don't really know how to feel about Kentucky with Oscar Shibway and Kentucky about, you know, playing high major opponents right and 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 we went from we went from one thing to the other with Kentucky pretty fast right i mean now all of a sudden it's a resume that has nothing especially impressive to hang its hat on and we're for a long time going to be questioning how good this team is relative to the other teams in the country when they go toe to toe and like that it's not like this game was close. They lost by 16. And the one thing you can't let Gonzaga do is get out and run. And guess what? Michigan state and Texas didn't let them do get Get out out and and run run. and Texas embarrassed them and Michigan state almost beat them. And if Madi Sissoko doesn't foul out, they, they might beat them. Right. And, and Kentucky, not only did they not do that, they didn't seem all that interested in doing it. And Calipari didn't seem all that interested in like a, realizing it and trying to put a stop to it. Um, It, it, yeah, it it was a, it was a pretty striking performance there. Um, And, and it's weird. Like part of me is like, can we back off the edge when it comes to Gonzaga now? And the other part of me is like, should we get a little bit closer to the edge when it comes Mm -hmm. to Kentucky?
1: Yeah. Which, which team does it say more about? And the other thing I'll throw in there to the point you just made, it's confusing to me how the team built around Oscar Sheboy was the team that couldn't control tempo. Mm-hmm. Michigan state wants to play fast. Texas doesn't necessarily play fast, but Texas at least has some guys who are dangerous in transition, right? Texas is not taking 10 seconds to go establish a guy in the post and then feed him the ball. Five straight possessions. Kentucky inherently, the way they play offense is slow because it's built around Oscar Sheboy. Oscar Sheboy is not a transition based player. And so the fact that you couldn't even turn that into being able to control Gonzaga's transition when other teams who don't have that were able to is yeah. a big concern.
0: Agreed. Yeah, I don't have I don't have a ton else on Kentucky. If you have anything else you want to talk about.
1: No, I want to say one thing about Gonzaga and yeah, I feel like the game and the scoreline pretty much speaks for itself. But One of the things we hadn't been seeing from Gonzaga was that secondary scoring. Anton Watson and Julian Strother, Rasir Bolton showed up big time in this game. Partially because it was more suited to their style of play, as you pointed out. So that's a real positive. And to the conversation about how am I supposed to feel about Gonzaga, those guards still worry me and that it's was not pretty
0: bad actually
1: uh, that just from a production standpoint you're not getting what you need from them so to me this was more about i came to the conclusion this was more about kentucky than gonzaga but important for gonzaga to sort of get back into a little bit more of a convincing rhythm and kind of find themselves for what feels like the first time this season
0: i mean if they're all three if those three guys are going to score twenty. 20- Points. I mean, you could you could send me out there to play point guard. Right. They're going to be but, they're going
1: to be able to hang with anybody. Yeah.
0: But it but at some point, it, whether it's Nolan Hickman or Hunter Salas, um, somebody's got to be the guy, right? Because it just I mean, Hickman seems to be the guy, right? Hickman is the guy that Mark View seems to have more confidence in. Um, I mean, Salas only played ten minutes in this game. Hickman played twenty eight. Um, but right i mean four points four fouls two assists and two turnovers right that's that's not that's not good enough um and and against a team where in theory and and i watched bits and pieces of this game and then when it was it got uncompetitive i stopped watching um but in theory the game where there's a 5-9 guy in the backcourt like it like in theory that should be the game that you're that you have a chance to at least cultivate a little confidence on offense. If nothing else, you can, you have no visual, you know, no issues seeing above the defense, right. And, Mm -hmm. and, and making plays, but yeah, that's, that is the biggest question mark for Gonzaga. And it's been a long time since that's been the question mark for Gonzaga, right. We went from Nigel Williams, Goss to, Jalen Suggs to and I know there was some time in between there but we you know we went from Nigel Williams Goss to Joel Yayi to Jalen Suggs to Andrew Nimhard. like that's that's been the progression right like yeah, that is Kevin
1: Pangos before that yeah Kevin Pangos before
0: that um Jeremy John Fargo St- was John Stockton's kid Arizona or Gonzaga I think it was Gonzaga right I do believe so yeah Right. I mean, that's like, this is not a, this is not an issue that Gonzaga has normally. And, and it's not like it's not and like the other guys on this team are not playmakers. They're just, I mean, they they are playmakers, but not for others primarily. Mm -hmm. Um, And so somebody has got to be that um, or that's going to be a very, very big hole in, in Gonzaga's personnel moving forward. Um, Anything else on either of these teams?
1: No, that was that was really all I had. We we kind of hammered it to death on Thursday, I feel like. <laughs> mm. And it's just reinforcing the same things for the most part in this game. So
0: Agreed. Um I've got one more thing to talk about and it all centers around Baylor. Do you do you have things from that event in general? Yeah, let's go to Baylor next. Okay. Um The, the biggest takeaway from Baylor is that Baylor is not a great defes- defensive team this year. Um, they started the season 12th in defensive efficiency. It's November 21st. They're already 43rd. Um, they're 193rd in defensive effective field goal percentage. They're horrible at keeping the other team off the foul line. I mentioned that in the Baylor game, the Virginia went to the foul line 35 times. That's too many times. Um, they're 254th in three-point field goal defense. Outside the top one one hundred and fifty in two point field goal defense, um, there's a lot to like about this team offensively. Um, there's not a ton to like about this team defensively right now, and you know it, it kind of has me. I mean, they needed eighty points to beat UCLA by five, um, and right UCLA has plenty of firepower. I mean, that's not that's that's fine, right? But there hasn't been a ton of man. Baylor is clamping down on this team tonight there hasn't been any of wow Baylor clamped down on that team tonight, and um and that's and we'll see well hopefully it gets better, but it's been it's been pretty bad early in the season, and like with all due respect, the team outside the top three fifty in tempo like they should never put eighty six points on you never never ever ever right um and even though they were efficient from the three point line, they only made nine of them, it's not yep. like they made seventeen of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they they need to get better on that side of the floor. Um, That's the biggest takeaway from the main event for me, and the numbers back it up in terms of their performance on that end of the floor so far this year.
1: Yeah, I feel like there was about a five-minute stretch when they kind of got back into the game against Virginia where you saw some really good things defensively, and then it just disappeared again. Mm-hmm. And that was my – I have two big concerns with Baylor, and that is one of them. Yeah, they – and that was that was one of the questions coming in, right? That I think people glossed over is this team doesn't have that versatile six, eight, six, nine guy, at least that we've seen so far, that can guard one through five the way Mark Vidal and Jeremy Sohan could. There is such a value into the the switchability of the way they play defense, and so far, and maybe you know if Chom if and when Tom comes back, maybe that helps a little bit, but he's also not switching one through five. The guy next to him is supposed to be the one switching one through five. And so that to me is a real concern that needs to, and you know, most of the guys who are in that potential role, this is their first year in the program, whether they're transfers or freshmen or whatever. So it could be by the time we get to January, they look much better in that regard and found that guy. But there is a real ceiling. You know, I, I, I'm in love with what their ceiling could be. There's also a real ceiling on what they can get to if they don't fix these defensive problems. And then the other thing is, I mean, the guards have been really good. And, you know, County George had a really good game against Virginia. He didn't have a good game at all against UCLA, but LJ Cryer and Adam Flagler had two of the best games of their careers. The backcourt is doing what the backcourt is supposed to do. Somebody's got to produce something from the frontcourt, particularly the starters. You're getting a little bit from the bench here or there, but that's the other part of this. For me. They don't need to be scoring 15 points a game, but it needs to be a little bit more balanced than it is on offense as well.
0: Jalen Bridges and Flo Thamba had a combined nine points yeah. in those two games.
1: Right, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yep.
0: Neither neither guy had a field goal against UCLA, and then against and then against Virginia, Thamba was three of three, but like Jalen Bridges did not have a field goal in those two games. And that was a part of the conversation, right? When we were talking about how good this team was going to be. And it's not like, and like Caleb Lohner has been the best big on the team and it hadn't yep. been particularly close. And, and that's not saying a ton because the bench hasn't been all that spectacular either because right, it's been the front court in the starting lineup that's been, that's underperformed. And, you know, we talked and, and, you know, again, Kendall in the preseason talked about, you know, yes, those three guards are awesome. But, like, we've got two other guys on the offensive uh, – in the backcourt that are coming off the bench that are also good. I mean, Dale Bonner and Langston Love combined for four points against Virginia. Um, they were a little better in the UCLA game. But, like, only only Dale Bonner. And that's because he went to the free throw line seven times. They He and Langston, Langston Love played four minutes. And Bonner had was one of three from the field. So, there's this, like – there's this this kind of mismatch thing going on, and inconsistencies from at least one part of both the front court and the back court. And right, the the, the guards have been really good. the the starting The starting backcourt has been really good, so it's masked some of those things. But right, if you're not going to play defense well, and you're going to get, I mean, like to win a national championship this year, you're going to have to go through elite front courts, right? Like that is going to be the case. And right, Chama Chachua will help with that. But if you're getting outscored, I mean, if you're getting outscored by 30 in the front court, like if you go play Gonzaga and Anton Watson and Drew Timmy have 41 combined, and you guys have seven, you're, it doesn't matter how good good the guards are because when you go to Gonzaga's guards, you also got Julian Strather and Rasir Bolton and all of the all of the dangerous players they have on the perimeter. Right? It is they're they're pretty unbalanced right now from a production standpoint and. That and their defense, it's gotta get better. Because teams don't win national championships when they're when they're built like that. They just don't.
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting that Virginia, I feel like, has become the team that Baylor usually is, where you kind of look up a couple weeks in, you go, oh. Mm. <laughs> and Baylor is a different kind of oh.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. They and so this is a different kind of project for Scott Drew. It's not managing expectations, it's not trying to keep keep going off after, after your, you know, eleven oh start or whatever. It's we got some problems that need to be addressed. You have time. They're in a perfectly fine situation with a very good loss. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like the it's all falling apart, but for mm-hmm. this team to get where this team can get, there's an awful lot that needs to change.
0: Yep. Yeah. What else do you have from this event?
1: I'm feeling pretty good about Illinois. I, I don't like really Illinois. have it I don't really have anything in particular other than they're looking like I thought they would and mm-hmm. like you thought they would. That They, to me, look like a team that can contend for a Big Ten title. So that's always positive. The other thing I wanted to highlight from a UCLA standpoint, Amari Bailey had six points to attend from the field in these two games at the main event.
0: Was he even worse in the first game? I I hadn't gotten, He had five points against Baylor. Was he? He was even worse in the first game. I hadn't yes, gone back. Unless I somehow
1: mit, horribly misread the stats. Yeah, yeah it no, was. You're right.
0: One point of yeah.
1: 5 from the field. Yeah. yeah. That is. I thought that was a an interesting discussion point in terms of him and what this year is going to look like for him. That you come up against these really really good teams, and that's again. It's, you know, five games or whatever into his college career. Certainly this could look different by the NTA tournament, but that part of it individually. And then also, as we've talked about, these freshmen need to be really good for UCLA.
0: Bono wasn't much better either. Seven yeah. points.
1: Seven points across the two games. They, to me, they were just the, I mean, they weren't that much worse than everybody else, but they were just the fourth best team in a tournament that had four of the top, you know, 15 to 20 teams in the country, which is mm. what makes these tournaments so awesome is, you just got four really good games, no matter who won and who lost. Uh-huh. But somebody has to end up 0-2 at the end of it. Uh-huh. And the team that kind of had, i you could argue Baylor has more to figure out, but Baylor also has perhaps the best trio of guards in the country.
0: Uh-huh.
1: UCLA doesn't, I mean, has very good players, obviously with Hami Haquez, et cetera, but doesn't have quite as much of a cushion as Baylor does. Virginia was the best team in this tournament and, Illinois has got plenty of weapons as well, so I just feel like UCLA. You know, credit to them for showing up, and it's not like they got blown out or anything. But mm-hmm. if they're gonna, it goes to that conversation we were having of can they actually contend with the best teams in the country? You need more from your freshmen. You need more from Amari Bailey in particular for that to happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're just it's not it's not a good enough team if those guys aren't if those guys aren't good, right? right. It's it's just not. It's not like them. We and we beat this this horse half to death. That it's not good enough for them to just be okay, and for them to spend 17 games really getting into the rhythm. I mean, if they're if they're elite the last 10 games of the season and carry that into the tournament, then then great. You play in the Pac-12, lucky you. You can probably survive that and still get a really good seed in the NCAA tournament. But um, you'd like to start from a better place when you get a chance to play high-end talent than what you got in these two games. Yeah, and also just as an aside for UCLA. Um, like, like apparently the the crowd at this event on the West Coast with three other teams that don't play basketball on the West Coast, UCLA's fan base was the worst of the of the four. Like, they, it was just the, the fan base was just non existent, which I find super strange. Um, and maybe it's just a it's a midweek tournament, and it takes a gajillion years to get out of LA, anyways. So, like maybe it's just not worth it. And maybe there just aren't that many UCLA fans in Vegas. Like that, that could, that could be it. But I was surprised to see like, like, and there are things that are like peculiar. And then there are things that get multiple people in the building to tweet about them. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple people yep. tweeting about how bad the UCLA fan base was. And that is, that one's, that one's interesting to me. So I don't know. I mean, like I'm sure poly pavilion will be packed when they play in pack 12 games in poly pavilion. Like, I'm, I'm not really all that worried about it. I was just, I, I, at one point this week had the thought of, oh yeah, UCLA out there on the West coast. And, you know, maybe they have a, a semi home court advantage, right. right? You see those, you see on Kempom that the, the location was semi home or semi, you know, semi away or whatever Um, thought that could be a semi home environment for them. And apparently was not.
1: Yeah. Just tough all around plenty of time to, to turn things around, but I wanted to point that out from a UCLA standpoint. Am I correct in assuming that you've just got, do you want to talk about
0: Houston? Is that anything? Is there anything else we need to talk about?
1: No, I just want to say one thing about this Houston, Oregon game. Okay. Uh, Real quick, Houston beat Oregon 66, 56.
0: Um, They're five and Oh, it's hard to argue that they're not, that there's anybody in the country better than they are right now. Um, what what would you like to add on to
1: that? Yeah, so, I mean, qualify this by saying Oregon's backcourt is really banged up right now. I think they were down to seven scholarship players by the end of this game. It was seven or eight or something like that. And we're playing, you know, two seven-footers out there at the same time because they didn't have the – Oregon needs to get healthy mm. before we actually know how good Oregon can be. That being said, Marcus Sasser just kind of sat on the bench the entire first half because he got in foul trouble. And when Marcus Sasser went and sat on the bench, Marcus Sasser didn't come off the bench because Marcus Sasser didn't need to leave the bench because Terrence Arsenault and Jairus Walker were outstanding. Arsenault in particular was the best player on the floor in the first half. And then Jamal Shedd, who has the ability to go score when he needs to, but then doesn't when Marcus Sasser's on the floor as a true point guard who understands his role on the team, chipped in with his points as well. And all of a sudden, they were now Oregon did kind of lock in defensively make a run you saw Houston get stagnant offensively which can happen sometimes with this team they still handled things just fine by the end but especially in that first half they they built and maintained that lead in large part without Marcus Sasser and i just wanted to point that out that this is Marcus Sasser is one of the best guards in the country he's probably going to be an all american it is not like he is carrying this team by any stretch of the imagination. He just happens to be option 1A on this team with plenty of other options. And these freshmen who kind of flew under the radar because everybody was talking about their teammates, mm. this is one of the best recruiting classes in the country. And these guys showed you why against Oregon when Marcus Sasser was in foul trouble. And to have the ability to just say, you know what, we don't need we don't need to push it. You've got two fouls you just take your time and come out in the second half ready to go because we are more than capable of playing without you is a tremendous weapon in a world where so many teams have looked iffy and we've identified flaws of some of these top teams in the country. That is a real positive for Houston that has already shown itself that these freshmen are ready to go and ready to contribute.
0: Yeah, I I don't have a ton to add. They They went into Oregon, didn't play great, Played okay. Marcus Sasser was in foul trouble. They won 66 to 56, and you never really felt like the game was in question. That's what I mean. You know, there's almost more to be said about. I mean, they were, you know, they they knocked down 50% of their three points. Like it was a good game. They shot, but they, you know, it's 42% from the field as a team. It was it was a fine performance, and you felt like it was never in question. And when you look back at the teams that go deep in March and into early April, there's a lot of yeah that you know they just kind of handled business. Never really felt like Oregon had a chance to, to 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 truly threaten, and they didn't really do anything all that spectacular. Um, but they got a win, and they they looked relatively comfortable doing it, even even when their best player was fifth on the team in minutes because he was in a little bit of
1: foul trouble. Mm -hmm. They did get a – I mean, they got owned on the boards a little bit because of Oregon's size, but that's just because of Oregon's size. I'm not worried about Houston's rebounding ability. Yeah, they were just exactly what you expect, well-oiled machine.
0: And, And just to kind of cap off the conversation about Houston, right, North Carolina has had their awkward games, right, they get pushed by UNC Wilmington. They give up 86 points to Charleston. Um, you look at right Gonzaga, Kentucky. We can talk about all of them. This is this is this is the the per game results for for Houston though <laughs> thus far. Um, 83 to 36 over Northern Colorado. 81 to 55 over St. Joseph's. 83 to 45 over Oral Roberts, 83 to 48 over Texas Southern, and 66 to 56 over Oregon. I mean, they are cruising. They're doing exactly what we thought they were going to do, and they have done nothing but solidify anybody's stance as them being a Final Four and National title contender, taking care of business in a season where thus far not a ton of teams have taken care of business and granted they don't have the game against another top 5 opponent, right? They don't have that game yet. Oregon is a team that already has a stinker of a loss on their resume, right? So all of those things are all of those things are worthy of being pointed out, but there are also teams at the top of the sport that struggled with bad teams in the ways that you wouldn't like them to and Houston has done the complete opposite of that. Just kind of put them in a 45-point box while they score 85 and move on with their lives. That's right. You got anything else?
1: We will be back with one of my favorite podcasts of the year, Feast Week Winners and Losers, Monday. Monday. No Thursday pod. Go eat turkey.
0: Go eat stuffing. Mash Mashed taters. (laughs) Green bean casserole. That's what I'm doing. I'm not talking to you guys on Thursday. Sorry. With all due respect. (laughs) but but yes we will be taking the thursday off um for thanksgiving um and that's typically what we end up doing um so we'll come back next week at the beginning of next week to kind of recap feast week um it's typically in the fashion of winners and losers of feast week and that 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 manages to, to get us around most of the sport and most of the big tournaments um, in exotic places with big <laughs> name teams playing in them. Um, that tends to get us pretty close to where we need to be and, uh, and, and paint a nice picture of Feast Week. So that's what we'll do at the beginning of next week. Um, please have a happy Thanksgiving or happy holidays. If you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, um, you're kind of missing out. But I, uh, but. Just eat turkey. Whether it's just eat stuffing, even though that's probably like is that like fourth and fifth on the on the Thanksgiving power rankings? Like all the sides are first,
1: right? See, I'm a big turkey guy.
0: Are you a big so, turkey guy? Okay. Yeah. I feel like we've kind of situated ourselves into this place where turkey is like really hated on. It's like yeah, it's just a yeah. dry meat. You got to put gravy on it to be good. Well, then put gravy on it. Put mashed potatoes on it. Stick it in between two rolls, and and have yourself a day. And uh, and then come back with three more pounds on your stomach, and we'll talk college hoops on Monday. Please subscribe to the Jays for Days podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Jays for Days Pod, YouTube, TikTok, all of those fun things. Just search Jays for Days podcast. And uh, like I said, we'll be back on Monday. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh, and we will see you later.